What is retro? Baby, don't hurt me. All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. PNP, Airbnb. Midi Meezing. And is it retro? All this and more coming up on this week's show. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. Hope you've had a good week. Uh, for anyone who might be new to this show, as we enter episode, what number are we up to now? What, 132. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a show all about the weekly retro news, as discussed by three balding middle-aged men. We'll talk about what we've been up to with our week, and we talk about retro news submitted by you to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. So with that in mind, uh, Chris, what have you been up to this week? What have I been up to? Oh, I played some Riven because I was given a copy by a mate who loved the game uh, when it first came out and he just wanted to spend some time going back through it. So we fired up the Windows 98 rig and and, and played that. And it kind of answers a question when we were discussing Mist last week and I said I remembered some of the movement being FMV joining the scenes. I don't think it was Mist I was remembering. It's Riven because you've got all those scenes where you go along like the um, to get from island to island, you go down those sort of sky rails. And that's what I had in my head, and that's in Riven. I don't believe that's in the original Mist. So original there we Mist. go. So that's how it's, they evolved the series. More interconnecting inside. animation, more budget for three D yeah. rendering, more power on their rendering farm, <laughs> um, and that went into Riven. Yeah, um, Chris, let's talk about Sex Baby. That came <laughs> up last week as well. CEX. No, look, I thought I'd look into this because I'm interested in the fact that some people have said they've got CEX in Australia. So I quickly checked out the CEX website, link in the show notes if, in case you're, um, or you can just Google it for yourself anyway. Um, but basically, Western Australia, zero uh, CEX stores. South Australia, zero. Northern Territory, zero. Uh, the ACT, uh, the Australian Capital Territory, two two CEX stores. New South Wales has 16, so that's the largest, and Queensland has 11 stores. So you're very lucky if you're in New South Wales or Queensland. Um, that's a total of 29 CEX stores for a landmass the size of Europe or North America, literally, right? And the UK has over 385 stores. So you can see why I see a massive difference here. In my view, CEX does not exist over here in the same in the same form at all. Uh, so 385 stores in an area that is 10 times smaller than just Western Australia, not the whole yeah, of, uh, of Australia, you, you just Western about, Australia. You can't talk about Australia in the context of area. You've got to talk about population density, haven't you? Yeah. That's what it's got oh, to be Oh, there's about. loads of us. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. heaps of us. Yeah, yeah no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> You're counting kangaroos, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, don't they count? God, you've got no, to count the kangaroos. Yeah, so of that, course you do. But it's, it's not like, I mean, well, to put that in perspective, there's almost a CEX store in almost every town you go to in the UK, give or take. And we do have stores like that. We, you know, EB Games or JB Hi-Fi, um, which do deal in, in used games, but only a, a generation or two back. And they're in every single friggin' shopping mall in every single suburb. So we do have that kind of saturation um, for the big chains. 
CEX is not a big chain over here. And that's it. Not another word to be said on it. <laughs> okay, all cleared up then. So when Chris says there are no CX stores in Australia, there are in fact 29. So that's <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had a good week this week. Um, I mentioned last week that I just got back from the Kickstart um, Expo and I had two and a half intense days of video editing and was really pleased with what came together as a video yeah. because you never quite know what you've got in the can, so to speak, when you're rushing around an expo with your GoPro and with your camera and if the audio is any good or not. I think it came out well. Um, some of the highlights for me, if you haven't seen the video, include an Amiga laptop based on something called the Akiko 32 board, which is a um, piece of hardware in a mini ITX form factor with a real Amiga chipset on there, including the Akiko chip from the CD32. Uh, and then they've put that into a prototype laptop, although you could just put it in a mini ITX case. So that's really nice, an O30 CPU you know, new old hardware. Uh, that's a really nice project. And the other really cool thing was uh, Robert Smith's backup um, archiving solution, which was like this big standalone unit where you just put your USB stick in there. I see Dave smirking there, trying desperately not to come up with Cure song titles for, for Robert Smith. You put your USB stick in, you put your floppy disk in, you simply press one button and it will archive your floppy disk like a self-service terminal, archive your floppy disk to your USB drive. Brilliant. And I'd love to get one of those set up for the for the cave for visitors. So that's my next objective. But if you want to see that and a whole lot more, um, head over to my channel. Watch the, uh, the kickstart video. And as I've just promoted my channel, YouTube slash RMC Retro, Chris, you've been doing some videos lately, haven't you? What's your latest video? Oh, um, Actually, before I do that, I just want to say I watched your video. And as you know, I've been setting up the Perth Amiga Users Group um, YouTube channel. And your video is excellent. And yes, I'll be trying <laughs> to do our next one as well. I won't get even close, but I thought it was a fantastic coverage. It's not easy to, to cover an event because you're mm. trying to experience it and capture something meaningful. And you did a fantastic job. Um, my channel, um, uh, latest one was messing about with the CD32. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, I'm just going to drop some lost footage that doesn't really fit anywhere else of actually some of it's from the cave, Neil, from the RMC cave. Oh, from, I did watch that. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. a last video. You watched it because I had to check it by you. It's not public yet. But we'll be, <laughs> we'll be in, a, in a week, actually, from when this goes live next week. That's when, when I'll drop that. Um, and just of the arcade that I discovered up halfway up the West Australia coast as well, that bit of footage of that is in there as well. Yeah. I did notice a new, a new, an old piece of hardware that's new to me. Um, do you remember Scala, who made um, uh, signage software on the Amiga computers and then later on the PC? Uh, they bought out their own hardware at one point, and a piece of hardware that I saw just in a book, I haven't seen it myself recently, was a desktop case, and in it was plonked a CD32 still in its case. Oh. And then attached different things attached on the inside, but that's how it sold at retail: a box with a full CD32 in there. Why not? What? And then an extension. <laughs> Why a so, CD32? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, my so question. I'm, be on the lookout for that. I guess it was a cheap solution to getting um, some kind of rack-mounted or desktop unit for their signage systems. There wow. we go. CD32s in the bargain bin. Stick them in a case. <laughs> make them look professional. Yeah, so you could make yeah. some signage or play Banshee. And that's pretty much yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dave, any updates from you this week, or do you want to go straight into housekeeping? Um, I have, I guess, I, I have hopefully fixed my audio. 
new webcam, lighting panels, light there. I should have it just right. Please let me know if it's not just right, but hopefully no more issues from there. But let's go into housekeeping. So from Matt on Discord, he said some follow-up uh, slash housekeeping uh, on my post about Maps form Escape from Colditz with some detective work and the Wayback Machine. I stumbled on this, which is an entire site dedicated to rewriting this game for, he says in brackets, now no longer modern platforms. Uh, and he's got a web archive, so it's been deleted, obviously, or disappeared, but it's still there. He said he tried it on Mac OS, but it fails, he says, likely because I'm on an M1 processor. Either of you try it? Yes, thank you for sending me that link. I downloaded it. And it worked straight off the bat on my Windows PC, um, went straight into the lovely title screen music from the Amiga and played exactly like I remember it on the Amiga. So if you want to play Escape from Colditz without having to worry about setting up emulation or downloading Kickstart ROMs or anything like that, let's make sure that link's in the show notes to archive.org um, via, is that via the Wayback Machine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can download it. You don't even need the game files. They're included. Don't know how they got around that, but that's included with the executable, and you can go ahead and give it a go. I got a message from one of our viewers, longtime viewer, Happy Coding ZX. He explained that someone, um, one of his patrons, had asked him to modify a game to make it work with a Kempston joystick. I decided while he was in there to go just a little bit further. Neil, you've seen this as well, haven't you? I have. He's called this game This Week in Retro Raiders, and uh, it's a Space Invaders clone. Uh, Chris has got a screenshot of it on the TV behind him there, and they've replaced the Space Invaders with our faces, beautifully rendered. Uh, I'm the yellow face, Dave's the pink with the spectacles, and Chris is the green. And uh, Happy Coding ZX is obviously a good coder, but also a great artist to get our likeness out of so few pixels it and he really like has it, captured it? the likeness <laughs> so thank you so much happy coding zx we are now retro raiders uh, working our way down your screen trying to destroy you we're in a game <laughs> you can you can go to um highriser.h.io slash space dash raiders dash kempston dash edition and you can download the space raiders with a Kempson interface or twirlraiders.tap and you can get the actual game to play and you can shoot us in the face. <laughs> Finally, you've been wanting to do it for weeks, I'm sure. Um, more, even more housekeeping and some controversy, some drama. Um, let me rock you with this drama. Last week, Chris said that Mist is point and click. <laughs> I said, I kind of see what you're saying, but I wouldn't think about it as point and click. And Neil said, it's not point and click. Yeah. Now, um, Farid Messer6517 says some pretty famous counter examples to, and he quotes Neil or paraphrases Neil, my character being there in the third person on the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, in the point-and-click genre, like, and he says, from the top of my head, Mortville Manor, Moppity Island, all the Legend Entertainment MS-DOS games, so he says the Spellcasting series, the Gateway series, Eric the Unready, Companions of Xanth, and so on, 
cult chamber of the Psy mutant princess priestess sorry um, I'm sure that's a different game uh, personal nightmare and obitus so he's saying hang on a minute these are all these point and click games that are point and click and you're wrong Gareth Q Gareth Q says talking mist it definitely is not a point and click adventure Neil described the differences perfectly Chris you are not imagining things there was a version that had movement that game has been remastered more than any other game I can think of the latest in 2021 and GOG has them all here's a collection with the top three remakes and masters and it's got a link to gog.com slash en slash game slash mist underscore through underscore the underscore ages so point and click I, 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 when I think point click, I think of Monkey Island and so on. I don't think about these games, but I don't think I could say they're not point and click. Neil, defend I'm, yourself. I, I'm going to stick to my guns. I haven't played all the games that uh, Farad Mecca or Mercer um, listed off. I have played Mortville Manor. Uh, with <laughs> that's the one where it uses the uh, the speech from the system to read out the descriptions. So um, quite a funny one to play from the first person perspective. Now. I would still call that an adventure, a mystery adventure game, not a point-and-click adventure game, in the same way that I might describe Elvira, for example. That's from the first person. Would you call that a point-and-click adventure game? Or would you just call that... Yeah, exactly. Exactly, you just call that Mm. sort of an adventure game that uses the mouse, maybe even a dungeon crawler in some ways, but not quite a dungeon crawler. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to put your finger on it, isn't it? But I think there is some differences there. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the other games listed to really comment on those, but I'm going to stick to my guns. Are you staying on the fence, Dave? Um, I, I still think, uh, what I said last week, when I think point and click, I'm thinking Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island, that type of thing. Um, but I don't, I don't, when I think of point and click, I don't think Mist. But if someone describes Mist as a point and click adventure, I, I don't think I could, I, I don't think I would, I would correct them and say they're wrong. I think, from my perspective, just to close, um, given mm-hmm. I really don't care about point and click adventures, <laughs> right. I don't care <laughs> what people think is yeah. a point and click or what isn't. It's not my favorite genre. <laughs> Ultimate Underworld is an FPS. Mm. Now, um, we are going to be off the air for hang two on, weeks. Hang following on, this hang week. on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Nobody mentioned Ultima. Why have you? Why have you brought Ultima <laughs> into the conversation? <laughs> I thought I'd throw something at the end there that might cause people to argue. Uh, plus, I like mentioning Ultima. Um, clearly a platformer. <laughs> it kind of is as well. Um, <laughs> flights him. <laughs> flights him. Ultima, you can fly. There's a flight spell. Um, we are off the air for two weeks following this Um, one of us is travelling from Australia to the UK I won't say who Um, there is there are things going on in in my life that would make it difficult for me Um, and it's a good time to recharge the Duncan and see if we can get his batteries back up before we deplete them again with more nonsense that requires editing uh, for him so you will not see us for two weeks in a row after this one. My um, apologies for that, and I hope you can manage without us. On that, can we just take this opportunity to once again thank Duncan? We haven't done it for a while. He had me in stitches yeah. the other week with his very careful placement of a certain sound effect when I was watching the show back, <laughs> as I do as part of quality control and self-improvement. 
I was just rolling around on the couch. It was fantastic. Every week he just puts such an effort in and we know it doesn't take him a short amount of time. So thanks, Duncan. Yeah. Okay. And he's also involved with Pixel Addict as well. He's uh, If it's retro, Duncan's probably there somewhere in some form. So he's a very busy man doing a lot for the community and, and a huge amount for us. So thank you, Duncan. My first story this week is a fun one. It involves a chap called Scott Leftwich of North Carolina in the US. He's been collecting arcades and consoles since the mid-90s. He says, and this is in an article submitted by Dr. Local to our subreddit, so thank you for that. So in the mid-90s, he said that the consoles and the arcades were pretty cheap to collect, and uh, he just went about filling his basement with them and fixing up broken machines for fun and as his hobby. Now, fast forward to the present day he's decided to make his collection work for him by turning it into the ultimate Retroheads Airbnb experience. So I've been over to Airbnb to read the listing, and this is how it reads. This 80s experience is like no other. The 80s arcade slash museum is the largest private collection of working golden age arcade games on the East Coast. All of the arcade games are from the 1970s through to 1984, representing the bronze slash golden age. You'll have your own private kitchen and bathroom, crash into your 80s-themed bedroom equipped with two comfortable twin beds, lots of 80s paraphernalia, a 1986 Magnavox stereo stocked with vinyl, a TV with many VHSs and DVDs, and two retro couches where you can play any games, as we own every game system ever made from the beginning to CD platforms. Whether you're an 80s kids or an 80s junkie, you will swear you've time-travelled back to the 80s. Um, so that's the description. I'm not sure he should be inviting 80s junkies. I think I don't think he means junkie in that in that way. But, um, <laughs> yes, Dave. <laughs> he says every game system ever made from beginning to CD platforms. I wonder if he really does have the British ones and so on because the, sometimes they get forgotten. Uh, I, I think his emphasis is more on the arcades than the consoles, looking at the pictures, because there is there is a nice mm. display of consoles that you can take off the shelves, but there's certainly not every one yeah. ever made. You know, probably every, every sort of major one he's got in there, yeah. I would imagine. Um, so, yeah, looking at the photos, we can see there's a spacious basement arcade, which isn't trying to be too fancy. It's got a plain concrete floor. It's dimly lit, and that just allows all the marquees and the CRTs to glow and come to life, and they pop out. And no doubt it sounds incredible to be in there. This space is complemented by a wood-paneled bedroom with Star Wars curtains. Uh, there was a Prince Purple Rain poster, amongst others, an E.T. bedside lamp by which you can read Mask and Spider-Man comics, a kitchenette, which looks particularly dated, and you'd probably rip it out in any other circumstances, but it works here. Uh, and then the bedroom um, extends into the lounge. That's one open plan area, which, have, which is also wood panelled. And there's a large TV unit built into that wood panelling. Looks very much as a Brit. It looks to me like every 80s US sitcom I've ever watched when they're in their lounge with the great big TV built into the unit there. And a selection of consoles, which you can plug in and play from the sofa. Now, I checked it out just with some random dates. It looks like on the dates I selected, it's about £282 for a night. That's with all the Airbnb charges and taxes on top, which you've got space for, you know, two double beds there. So if you're going to split it two ways with someone else staying in there, that's not terrible for a whole day and a whole night in what is essentially a private museum for you. And no doubt Scott can be available if you've got any questions about the cabinets or just want to hang out and play with him and get some tips from games, I'm sure, or he'll just leave you to it, I'm sure. 
So um, I don't think that's too bad. And the electricity isn't going to be so cheap to have all those running. I don't know if he has them all on at once or not. don't know. Maybe we need to book it and find out. Um, so, guys, an Airbnb as an experience and a way for collectors to share their games and recoup some of the costs for their upkeep or to further expand their collection. What do we think of this idea and what do we make of Scott's collection? Uh, Dave, let's go with you. So I was pleased to see this. There's been a, a lot of, I think, justified pushback against Airbnb as a thing because people were, I think, misusing Airbnb. There was towns where there was a, a sustainable amount of holiday lets and then all of a sudden, people were buying houses to make them into Airbnb holiday lets and it really unbalanced things. And there was then people trying to do what a hotel does, but doing it badly with all sorts of enormous surcharges and cleaning fees and lists of things that the renter needs to do to clean the place and all the rest of it. And it, it, it wasn't a hotel, but it was causing um, things, to go, things to go wrong in the rental markets. And I think there's been... I st and all of a sudden, a stark decline in Airbnb rentals as a result of it. It's gone too far, and then it's kind of swung back. And for me, that's not what Airbnb should be about. It shouldn't be about working around the rules to, to rent properties out where you're not supposed to, really. It should be something like this. It should be unusual. It should be inventive. It should be something that just couldn't work as a hotel. So this is perfect. This is ideal. I mean, what a great place to stay. Obviously, if you're looking to, if you're flying in and you've, you've got a meeting in the morning, you're booking a hotel room for it, you would never look at this as a, as a place to go. It would be a waste of money, but it would be ideal to go to, to spend some time there when you're booking it. Um, it's no surprise. I think that all three of us will, will be fond of the, the 80s aesthetic, given that we're doing this podcast. Um, but we've talked in the past about an 80s aesthetic that didn't exist, a fake one. Um, I kind of wonder we've seen more recently in uh, in films and TV. Now, Neil, you mentioned sitcoms, and sitcoms are where sitcoms from the, the 80s are where you really see what it looked like, actual. Uh, ones from the 80s rather than ones doing going back now? Well, we, we we presume so in the US context because neither of us were there. But um, is, it, is it safe to say that an 80s sitcom in the US is a fair reflection of a 80s house in the same way that do we think an 80s sitcom from the UK is a fair reflection? It won't, it won't be the same kind of... Um, nostalgic, fake way that they've looked back, where everything's everything's amped up and it's not quite what what anyone really had. So I, I'm glad they've gone for what the reality of it likely was, or something that at least feels authentic, rather than the the, the over the top ridiculous '80s aesthetic that didn't really exist. It better have a telephone in the kitchen with a really long cable. That's that's all I remember from 80s US sitcoms. People on the telephone, on the landline with a really long cable. They'd walk around the whole house. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And they'd never tie themselves up in knots doing it. Yeah. If you are going to put all that effort into making what, what he has, an 80s haven for himself with all these arcade machines, it's an impressive lineup as well. And I, I like that he's gone for that age of arcade machine rather than... Street Fighter 2 everywhere. Um, yeah, there's some really nice systems, uh, arcades in there. Dragon's Lair stood out for me, uh, as well as a bunch of 70s ones that I hadn't heard before, but had unique or interesting control panels, steering wheels, gear sticks, things like that, which made it look like it would be fun to not just revisit games that you love, but also explore and discover new ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
The only thing I would possibly add that I haven't seen in the pictures is maybe just a bookcase with some cool books to help you learn about hmm. some of the systems there. That might be fun. Um, but, you know, on the whole, it looks pretty good. Did any games stand out for you, Dave, when you were flicking through the pictures? There were a lot uh, there. Just- just just loads of them just loads of them in dragon's lair i saw and there was no out of order sign on it which is unusual because all the dragon's lair i saw um out of order yeah we uh we might be um getting hold of a dragon's lair 2 very soon mm. um which i'm really excited about but we're already saying okay it's great it's got the laser disc it's got the laser disc player but we probably want to put some kind of laser disc emulator in there just to keep it going because they're so unreliable even as a fallback or even as a fallback and i think in the case of an fmv game you're not losing a lot if you're just switching to the video streaming from a you know solid no, state because, device instead of a laser yeah, disc. i don't think you're how, losing how, anything yeah how could it be different other than maybe there's less delays and timing and so on but yeah yeah chris what do you think about this well, first of all, I think the collection looks awesome. Yeah, really nice selection of games. Um, nothing wrong with Street Fighter 2, Dave. I love that game. Um, but um, no, I'm, I'm not really yeah. having a go at so much. It's just that... You, I know what you uh, mean, uh, though. Arcade, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that's because that's one of the... Well, I, I can't use the word affordable because they've all shot up in price, but it's not one of the more expensive cabs, or I think you can get a jammer. Is, is Street Fighter 2 jammer? Is that yeah yeah yeah? I mean, the thing about Street Fighter Two is it's it sort of ushered in another era of arcades when they were flagging, uh, and therefore it was everywhere. It was like the Rick Astley of video games. You know, you couldn't avoid it. So for for certain people, you push back against that kind of popularity for a while, don't you? Yeah. Um, So that's probably why some people go, "Oh, Street Fighter," but it's a fantastic game. It's also Street Fighter 2, sorry, where... not Street Fighter. Street Fighter yeah. 2. <laughs> Street yeah, Fighter Street 2. Fighter's not. <laughs> but also it's that weird era where we were happy with the home console versions. The SNES version was fantastic. The Mega Drive slash Genesis version were fantastic as well. So When know. they eventually got it. Yeah, yeah. So you don't really need to buy a cab, is what I'm saying, to enjoy that game. Um, but in terms of people doing this with their own collections, um, it's, it's an, you know, for a fleeting moment, I had thought in the past I could do something similar with this room, um, simply because this is already our spare room. The couch, which you guys can't see in the corner here, is a fold-out um, sofa bed, and the room over in the corner behind the door is actually an ensuite bathroom with a shower and toilet and all the all the amenities there. Um, so I've basically got everything. All If I wanted to turn this into an Airbnb, all I've got to do is list it, basically, and pay the appropriate taxes. Um, but my when I started recollecting stuff, my initial idea partly was to try and recreate something similar to my old bedroom but this room is way too big uh, which is a nice problem to have but the room I grew up in was absolutely tiny it was the box room of the house which anybody that's grown up in the UK knows what that's like basically you got room for a doorway a bed on one side a chest of drawers on the other and that's your life um, so this room, you know, is, is, is much bigger than that. Um, but it'll be nice to have that, that bedroom factor. Maybe when both my boys have moved out, I'll commandeer one of their rooms and, and live that dream. That would be quite cool. And I have always, always, always wanted not an arcade, but an arcade machine or two, um, should have picked up Outrun when they were affordable in inverted commas, um, but dif- different. Um, but I think yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, if, you can, if you can make it work and make money out of it, why not share your collection in this way? And it makes me think, Neil, will the RMC cave with the or a space in the mill, is there a way of, you know, turning that into a B&B in the future? 
it has been requested many times from visitors, mm. and I think it would be a fantastic idea to have a, a separate annex in which you could book and stay and, and have consoles uh, and then uh, private access to the museum. Uh, I, I would guess that there are certain restrictions on what can actually be done in the building, being a business, being the, you know, you've got to declare what type of business you have in the building and what you're doing there when it comes to things like business rates and stuff like that. So it's not really for me to say we can do that or we can't. It's down to the landlord. Um, and I'm not sure that's a, a type of business that they want to go into. It comes with risks as well, doesn't it? Having strangers come and stay in your building. So I wouldn't ever rule it out, but I'd, I'd certainly love to do that someday. Mm. Um, and, you know, you were mentioning there possibly, you know, the, the thought has crossed your mind there, but this is the problem when it comes to Airbnb. You've got to do it properly. You can't go in half-hearted. You've, you've got to do it properly. I remember booking an Airbnb in London once when I was going to a concert and I got there to check in and um, uh, the woman who greeted us said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I've double booked, but it's okay. I've just gathered everything out of my room and you can stay there and just put me up in her <laughs> bedroom and it was like this is not what i booked this is no. not what was reviewed this is you know you've yeah. got to have a you've got to give a good experience so it looks like that's what scott's done with his it looks like you've got the whole basement now i'm assuming the bedroom in the kitchen are part of that basement as well it looks like they've put fake windows in this it's almost like a tv set and then light panels behind the windows i'm assuming that because you don't see anything out the windows you just have light light kind of pouring in the mm. windows um but that's fine. I would I would quite happily stay in Scott's basement for that price. And uh, who knows, if we ever go over to the East Coast, we can do a This Week in Retro trip there. Uh, if you fancy staying there yourself, there will be a link to his Airbnb listing in the show notes. And get some pictures. Let us know how it goes for you if you head over there. And well done, Scott. I think this is a superb idea. To let you know how professional we are at This Week in Retro, when Chris was speaking there, I knew that I needed to get a drink because my throat was closing up. So I, I waved and signaled to people so that I didn't need to interrupt Neil and Chris when they were speaking. And Chris, just to let me know that, that he'd seen it, give a great big thumbs up to the camera. Well done, Chris. Well Seamless. done. Dave, Seamless. they didn't need to know. We, we took, did a retake. You could have let it slide. Back. But that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> then people wouldn't get to share and enjoy of me seeing you doing that. Fair enough. <clears throat> On to story talking. two. Honey. No, 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 no. Talking about professional, we need to now do our sponsor bit, which is also very professional. We are sponsored, thank you very much, to Pixel Addict monthly magazine every six weeks a new magazine has just arrived we would have talked about it last week but we had a special sponsor spot to do recorded by the pixel addict um people themselves so if you missed that last week go back and watch it they showed us what what truly professional looks like um this new uh, magazine has um the Commodore Plus Four on the front, so it's got a big story about that. Is it the Plus Four? It's not. It's not this. It's not this Commodore Sixteen. It's a Plus Four. Plus, plus four. four. It is the Plus Four. Um, something I, I don't know a great deal about that, so I will be reading that to find out. And they've also, I've noticed, they've got an article on Mist, which is they quite have. Timely. Yeah, yeah, I was going to cool. suggest that to Chris. The point and uh, click adventure. Yeah, so when this month's issue appears in Australia in three months' time, you can pick that up <laughs> and have a read about Mist. They also cover Prince of Persia, SSX Tricky, which is a game I loved oh, for the short oh. period that I had a PlayStation 2. Same. That was 
one of those games that made you feel cool just playing it you know and it had that soundtrack that kind of faded in and out as you played and like when you landed a jump the beat kicked back in that was such a fun game to play um they also cover ipods and microsoft zune the uh, long forgotten mp3 player as well as homebrew heroes and all sorts of other articles uh, besides and let's not forget that uh, pixel addict does have a sister magazine so if you go to addict.media it will also show you a link to pixel addict and amiga addict so if you're if you're more into your amigas there's a whole magazine dedicated to that and pixel addict is uh, britain's best-selling digital culture magazine according to their strapline i'm not sure if there are any other digital culture magazines uh, they probably are yeah, yeah this is britain's best-selling maybe australia's as well um, if they've got it in that week yeah. they didn't have it in this week let me put it that way <laughs> You didn't ask forcefully enough. So if you want to find out more, go to pixel.addict.media. And thank you very much, guys, for supporting the show. Sometimes a really special video shows up on YouTube, a video which has hundreds of hours of work going into it, and the end result really justifies it. And last week, one of those came out for our retro circles. Thanks to Weeping Scorpion for submitting it to the subreddit. It's actually within a couple of hours of the video being released. So um, I saw it, actually seen it by that point because YouTube had kindly submitted it to me uh, on their uh, algorithm. Now, when the Atari ST was designed in 1984, Atari decided to add fully functional MIDI ports to it. And prior to this, people had commonly used a Commodore 64 because it was so inexpensive, or Yamaha had made MSX machines with MIDI. Now, neither were great solutions. In fact, Neil, you did a video on the, the Yamaha one, and it was, it was decent enough, but it wasn't a great solution. The Atari ST, though, was massively more powerful than either of these options. Now, when the specifications for the Atari ST were chosen, you might suspect that Atari just looked at the current Mac, which is the which would have been the Macintosh 128 and then 5112K, and just matched or beat it. So more memory than the 128K, a 12-inch screen instead of a 9-inch screen, and effectively 33% faster processor speed, 640 by 400 resolution instead of 512 by 342, a proper keyboard rather than a cut-down one, a better sound chip, custom chips that help the ST, a fast DMA ASCII port, and the most important factor, it was a fraction of the cost of the Mac. When the ST launched, the, the price, including the monitor, was less than one third of the th of the launch price of the Mac 512K. Um, although I think the actual price to buy was maybe slightly over double. Uh, I think Macs were quite heavily discounted that way in retail. Um, now that made the Atari ST a bit of a split personality machine. Um, you connected a mono monitor to it and it was a high resolution desktop publishing or business or MIDI machine. But if you connected a color monitor or as we did, a color TV through the modulator and it was great for games and it looked a very different system completely. Um, and the 1040 ST, along with a range of fantastic MIDI sequencing software, quickly became the standard machine for MIDI, not just in the late 80s, but well into the 90s. A huge number of artists used it, and it was just a standard piece of studio equipment. Uh, right out the box, it was fully capable of MIDI without having to buy a separate add-on, and it was accurate and had reliable timing. 
that I was aware of it because my school had one in a cupboard connected to a very expensive synth keyboard and I had fun lots of making these kind of raindrop sounds and crystal cave type things. I've no musical ability, but I did enjoy a bit of a fiddle with it. Um, but I think the main reason the Atari ST owners would known about it um, is from Atari ST magazines, because we would see when you had the magazines, you would see the games in it, but you would also see the other content, buyer's guides, and talking about the various different productivity things that you could do with your Atari ST. And lots of that was MIDI. And you would get sometimes covered discs would have MIDI software on them to fiddle about with not the not the high end stuff, but kind of half baked knockoffs that would stick on the the, the cover disc. Um, and until now, I don't feel that there's been a really really thorough video on it. And Debug Live has created a really a magnificent video, at least part one of a magnificent video. Uh, he said it took over a year to do it, and it shows. And most of the equipment he bought, he said, had to be repaired. Now, I, I watched it, and while I, I couldn't call myself an expert, I do know a lot about the ST, and I think he got everything right. There wasn't any little annoying errors in there. It's a really good video. It's really worth a watch. Now, Neil, I know you've now got a musical alter ego, <laughs> so why am I calling you DJ Bins? DJ Bins? Um, so I was asked to be a wedding DJ last weekend. I've never DJed before in my life. Um, turns out my friend who was getting married gave all of us little jobs, uh, me and then one other guy was a DJ. Uh, someone else was asked to conduct the ceremony. Uh, there were lots of jobs handed out and all of us were like, well, I don't know why you've asked us, but we're, you know, as a mate, we're perfectly happy to give it our best shot. And actually it created a really nice fun atmosphere and everyone had a kind of was willing everyone else on to do well and it went really nicely. Um, so yeah, I had to do a DJ set. It was great fun. I probably won't get the chance to do it again, but it was DJ bins because when I was at home, I've got this double recycling bin and it was the perfect size to put my decks on and practice. So that's why I was DJ bins. I practiced on the bins. Anyway, back to this video. The video, as you say, is superb. Uh, and something else that I want to mention is it's not only a nice explanation of what made the ST so powerful for musicians, not just musicians on a budget, but all musicians who wanted a, a digital audio workstation in, in their home and also in the studio. But this brought it all down to a budget where you could actually have it at home and use it at home, but also perfectly powerful. And also the timing was perfect. That was one of the things that the SD stood out for on, on MIDI, that it, it was sort of absolutely perfect on the timing to keep all those MIDI devices in sync and ticking along. Um, so superb system for that. But also on top of all that, this video is a really nice showcase for Citrix, the 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 other name of the of the chat. What did you say his YouTube channel was Debug called? Debug Live. Debug Live is Citrix, who many of you will have heard of. He's a super talented musician. He demonstrates various instruments plugged into the system and uh, composes tracks on this video. But Citrix is also an Australian musician who makes a lot of awesome music for the demo scene. And he makes tunes on all kinds of hardware, including PC engines, Mega Drives, Game Boys, anything with a sound chip in, basically. So it's well worth checking out Citrix's other work. Um, and, and I can't think of a better person to have made this video. It really was the, the perfect coupling, except for maybe one other person who I want to mention. And you should also check out their content. It's Paulie on her channel, Magical Synth Adventure, also does super videos on, on similar kind of topics and also is a very talented musician and can demonstrate um, all of this equipment firsthand. So Citrix, and then also check out Magical Synth Adventure.
Chris, are there any masterpiece retro videos that you can think of, any real labours of love where hundreds of hours have gone into them? <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm sucking up, but seriously, everything by RMC, by, by Neil, um, and, and also LGR <laughs> and also Retro Recipes. Just I've done video editing and, and I purposely don't put a lot of effort into my videos because I'm time poor and I just want to make something good enough. But what I'm saying is I have enough knowledge to know and to recognize when somebody's put the hard yards in uh, and, and really spent a lot of time on something, not just in how they present something and the investment that they would have put into the kit, um, how much editing time and how much thought has gone into that, but also the research behind it. Because at the end of the day, whilst we're all interested in, in retro and in the machines we grow up with, that doesn't mean we instantly know everything about every machine from those time periods and I, I can tell when people have you know really done the digging to try and get the facts right it's very dangerous as the old saying goes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing and it's very easy to make assumptions about old technology because you had it as a teenager and or you had it as a kid and you're like, yeah i had that for many years years ago therefore i know lots about it that's dangerous territory that's when mm. you start to make mistakes so you really do need to the, the more you think you know something, the more you need to double check those facts. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of our facts, and I'm recognizing this now, is based on A, false memories, um, and B, playground arguments, you know, because there wasn't the internet <laughs> to research and actually get the information mm. from. It was something you half skim read in a magazine and then an argument with yeah. a mate, an argument with your brother, and that formed your opinions on a great many topics. Or even yeah, a, yeah. a split second from Andy Crane telling you that the Amiga 1200 was rubbish. Um, you know, stuff even, like that. Even when the internet came around, you know, you might go on a forum and there might be some like Australian posting like, like false information about how to unlock things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who, 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 who would do a thing like this, Chris? And just what? absolutely ruin the game for you. <laughs> I wasn't in Australia at the time. <laughs> I, was, I was still in the UK. That's why um, you have to leave. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and funnily enough, I mean, on that topic, like I said, I, I, I purposely target a certain level with what I do. And what I have found, and it's a bizarre, consistent trend, the more effort I put in in a video, the less views it gets. So I think I just stick to talking smack to the camera, <laughs> you know, low time, low, low production quality. Um, but going back to this topic of, of music and, and the Atari ST, I absolutely loved keyboards um, back in the day. And I remember going into Boots the Chemist um, for a while. Um, as We've talked about this, but the, the bizarreness, the fact that we went to a chemist to look at computers and computer games, but this was the reality of our childhoods. And they would have the, um, the, 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 you know, the ones aimed at the home market, the Casio keyboards with all the sort of pre-built-in sound effects and, and drum beats and all of that. And just I'd just play with them for hours. I have no talent in that area um I, you know soon found that out um but but i absolutely loved the whole idea of making your own music and, and that kind of thing and my mum had an electronic piano at home um so i would spend hours just messing about on that um playing electric guitar as well i had one of them for a while again a bit like bill and ted never learned to actually play um but the Atari ST, I was very aware back then growing up of, of how well regarded it was in that area. And in fact, the college I went to, West Kent College um, in Tunbridge in Kent, um, they actually had Atari STs in the music room. And one of my mates who I used to swap computer games with, we, we would go into the music room and mess about on the Atari ST, linked up to the keyboards and play about in the software. And 
one of my sons now, Luke, um, he actually makes his own music. He's a, he's a, a good keyboard player, um, and he makes his own music in LMMS. I think the software package is called um, with his with his either his keyboard or his keytar, which is sitting behind me. So it looks like I know what I'm talking about. Um, and um, you know, he, he uses that software on his laptop to make his own music today. And the interesting thing is, looking at this video, um, when you look at Cubase, which is covered in the video, and some of the screens, particularly where you've got the keyboard layout horizontally down the left-hand side, sorry, vertically down the left-hand side, um, and then you can see where all the notes come in and where all the different sound effects come in, it looks so similar to this modern software, LMMS. It's like, you know, the, the functionality hasn't changed, and I would argue that the sounds that you could put out using the um, Atari ST connected to the right MIDI um, uh, systems sounds extremely similar to the kind of music you'd put out now with with similar software in the modern day so yeah it's cool yeah i don't think that i don't think the sound quality in music has had really changed from the 90s it's more what they can do with the autotune yeah um i have to ask chris because you haven't mentioned it is that a keytar behind you yes i did briefly mention it I was oh sorry i missed fast. that yeah so yeah. that's what that's luke's that's one of luke's you got that recently because they're they're really not cool. I hate. Sorry to anybody that loves the keytar. They're really not cool, and he loves the fact that keytars are not cool. He just needed one. He wanted one. So that was a. I think that was last year's Christmas present from us. Actually, I can't remember. I think. Yeah. Oh no, he bought it. I think he bought it himself. I can't remember what we funded and what we haven't. But anyway, yeah, he's got that. I'm and not he's, sure and they he's were ever cool, cool were they? Well. No, like they the, were never the, cool. Like the skinny tie <laughs> of the musical world. It's like I can't play keyboard and I can't play guitar, so I'll play this thing halfway in between and do a bad job of both. <laughs> can prance about with it, though. Yeah. Um, now, this is only part one of, I'm presuming, two parts. Maybe he'll do more. hope he does. Um, so I, I presume he's going to cover the most important function of the Atari ST MIDI ports, which is to play 16-player MIDI maze. Um you could play. Um, you could. You could. You could with fifteen other Atari STs link them all up and play an FPS game long before Doom against each other. Hardly anyone did it. No one seems to know about it, but it was possible back then. It was more of a point and click adventure game. Well, yes, that's right. Because you would point <laughs> and you would click your gun at them. A point and click interface. Really, do watch the Atari ST video. It, it, it really is fantastic. A wonderful video. You learn so much for, for it. Um, you will sit and you'll watch the whole thing in one go. You'll be enthralled. And thank you for making such um, a thorough video for us. Uh, and thank you for submitting it to the subreddit. Such adhesiveness eight three nine posted a very simple question in the subreddit. Um, they simply posted a photo of the PC version of Halo with the question, is this retro? Um, before we give yeah. our thoughts, before we give <laughs> our thoughts on that, Dave, I'd actually like to expand on what Halo and retro both mean to me. Um, I remember when the original Xbox came out in 2001, and I can actually see it clear as, as if it was yesterday in um, a store called Game in Tunbridge Wells in Kent in the UK, because that's where I lived um and uh so this was before i moved to australia and as you walked in the store directly to the right was a demo xbox you could play on and the game on it every time i saw it in use was halo and every time i saw people playing halo all i ever saw was the beach and people driving around in the warthog so it was third person perspective and that's why i didn't actually give the xbox or halo Sorry? Does yes, that make it's, it's a point and click? It makes it point and click. If it's in third person, it makes it point and click. 
But it's why, actually, I didn't give the Xbox or Halo match attention at that point because from what I'd seen, I assumed it was the person and I didn't really like that that much. Probably also assumed it was a point-and-click adventure, which I'm not into. Um, and also, I had a PS2 at that point, which I'd got on pre-order, you know, on launch day, which was a big event in 2000, as anyone who did the same knew. You had this waiting list, a whole lot of hype. Um, yeah, so that was a cool thing. So I certainly wasn't going to dump that only one year after its release. Um, after getting a PS2. Um, so the Xbox wasn't on my radar. Of course, later learned that Halo is, in fact, a first-person shooter, which is, you know, my bag. Um, and it's first-person unless you're in a vehicle. And, of course, the Xbox is essentially kind of a consoleized PC in terms of, you know, essentially the same architecture um, and GPU. Um, but at this point, uh, by the time I came to those realizations, we decided to move to Australia. So this is around that that same time, which is actually quite relevant. So the PS2 was sold uh, along with most of our stuff and a free Amiga 500 I'd been given was taken to the dump and thrown away. And off we went to Australia. Um, and moving countries is a defining moment in anyone's life. If you've ever done it, you'll know what I'm talking about. And... I enjoy the retro hobby not just because it takes me back to my childhood, but because at the same time it actually takes me back home to England. Um, and so for me, I have a very defined line in the sand with nostalgia being most attached to anything that reminds me of home. So we moved to Australia at the end of 2002, uh, and one of the first things I did was purchase a TV and an Xbox with Halo as the packing game and Jet Set Radio Future and Sega GT 2002, the racing game. And I absolutely loved Halo, played it through to completion, also went on to play 2 and 3 uh, through to completion as well, played so many hours in Blood Gulch in multiplayer and made actually made new friends here in Australia around Xbox nights and, and mostly more than any other game, killing other people in Halo. Um, the PC port, which is the one that was pictured, um, actually came out in 2003 uh, and I, it didn't actually play that well on most of the machines of the time so for me halo is an xbox game it's a fantastic first person shooter for a console but is it retro um so neil i'll go to you first is halo retro and what is the newest game that you would deem retro and why hmm well just to preempt the comments there where you said Halo is an Xbox game. Its roots go back to the Apple Mac. Oh, uh, I'm well aware. Marathon and Bungie. So uh, some people would argue that it's actually an Apple game, an Apple Mac game. But no, it wasn't ever released there. Was it released later on the Mac? I know it came out on the PC. I don't know if it ever, ever came out Ooh, for the question. Mac. Um, Does anybody care? Does anybody care? Oh, Dave. <laughs> The Mac oh, owners play that. games. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, so is Halo retro? Now, Halo is old enough that when I um, pick up and play it on an original Xbox controller, I totally forget how to play the thing and I have to relearn it. That's the first thing that I'll say. Uh, when you go to uh, Play Expo in Blackpool, they have this ring of, I think, 16 Xboxes all linked up. So it's sort of this portable Halo unit that they set up at different expos and you can walk up to it and jump straight into the game and take on other people. I walked up to it last time I was there, held the controller and just kind of started walking sideways and couldn't shoot anything and couldn't remember how to play the game at all. So much easier for me with a keyboard and mouse. But I did own an Xbox, an original Xbox, and I did own Halo and I did put hours and hours and hours into the game. I don't know why I can't remember it, but there we go. So that's the first thing. 
Playing it also takes me back to being, or just thinking about it, takes me back to being in my 20s, sharing a flat with a friend with very few cares outside of paying the rent and living in a kind of student party town called Bournemouth um, down in Dorset and just having a great time, just having lots and lots of fun. So this game takes me back to a very different time in my life and evokes all of the memories around that period, which for me makes it a retro experience. It's not just about the game, it's about everything else that it evokes. Now, um, so yes, in, in that respect, I'm gonna say yes, Halo is it's 20 years old. It does all those things for me, it's a retro game. Now, another game that's even newer than that, that gives me all of those same feelings is Project Gotham Racing 3 on the Xbox 360. So we're gonna generation newer now. Ever played PGR 3? No? Project Gotham rings a bell, but I don't, yeah. yeah. Surprised you haven't, Chris, because when you're up. not playing the game, you can go into like your virtual garage and you can just kind of walk around your Ferrari and look at it from different angles. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it rings it's a bell, a but Need, Need for Speed Underground Batman? 2 was what I was playing on the original X. Oh, that's the original yeah. Xbox, though. Yeah. Anyway, so carry PGR on. 3 came out in um, 2005. So, what I, again, I'm tying this into memories of a period. So at this time, I'd had to move back for a short period to my dad's house for a month or two. So I was kind of between houses. I was put in my old bedroom, which by that point had been converted to a guest room because <laughs> the moment I moved away from my house when I was like 17, um, it was, my bedroom became a guest room. There was no, oh, we'll keep it just in case he comes out. We'll just keep it nice for him. No, it's a guest room. Everything was ripped out. <laughs> so, but even so, it, you know, it was still my old room. So I was in there for a couple of months. Most of my stuff was in storage. So the only thing I had was a 14 inch CRT to play this on in 2005. Um, so that was kind of retro. And I just got really hooked on this game. And on top of being in the house, I was also, you know, the house was in the neighborhood. So every time I stepped out of the house, I was surrounded by memories of all the friends that I used to play with, all the houses I used to go to, the walk to school, all of that stuff. So Project Gotham Racing 3 for me is a retro game, and that's from 2005. I can't think of anything newer at this point. So I'm going to go with 2005. Um, so that's 18 years ago. Yeah. Have we got any advance from any of you guys on an 18-year-old game being retro? I think I will when it comes to me. Yeah, I will. Mm -hmm. um, well, we'll, so we'll go over to you, Dave. Yeah. So <laughs> Lovely Halo. transition there, Chris. Over Thanks, to you, fantastic. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, fantastic, Noah. Dave? Fantastic. Neil? <laughs> uh, Halo, is, Halo is retro. Halo is retro. Uh, 100%. No, no question about it. It's important to, to distinguish between a retro game and a retro style game and a game for retro hardware because all three of those could be described as retro games. Yeah. So I think what we're talking about here is a game a game that, that came out is now old, I guess. A vintage so for, game. For me, yeah. For me, it would be Oblivion, I think. Um, I think uh, a retro style game, um, there's loads of them, but one I'll get to soon is Thimbleweed Park. Um, but there's no challenge in naming new ones. It's not difficult to do that. And of course, a game for retro hardware. Again, no challenge, but I'll name Jack's the Dog for CPC, which came out very recently. Uh, but going back to what I said about Oblivion, Oblivion is a 2006 game, and it's not too far for from Fallout 3 in 2008, but I have to draw a line somewhere. It's difficult to draw a line, but I feel Oblivion is... Oblivion feels older than Fallout 3. Oblivion is kind of maybe on the line for me um, with with what's old 
technology and what's not. And I think for me, the, the dividing line was Oblivion feels like it belongs on Windows XP and Fallout 3 feels like it belongs on Windows 7. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. It's just what it feels like to me. Um, and I don't think there's a scientific way of doing this. But we do need to remember our age, though. So for a generation younger than us, let's say a 30-year-old, they would have been 13 or 14 years old playing Oblivion. And that could easily be their first deep RPG game. So they could have been 13 or 14 playing that. There is no way at 30 years old, thinking back to them, there's no way they're not going to have the same nostalgic feelings that we have about games that nobody argues are retro about that. So we, we absolutely cannot take it from someone that that's a retro game. If that's what they feel like, it's got to feel that way to them. Yeah. Yeah. Fallout 3... 2008 windows 7 came out in 2009 so technically could be a vista game dave but oh yeah no, yeah no nobody mm. wanted to play it's it's, it's a bit late for windows 8 yeah i know mm. i mean a lot of people would have been hanging on to xp waiting yeah. for 7 and ignoring vista mm. i don't think that makes much difference you know we all upgraded our os's at different points yeah. depending on our hardware um i think i, it's, I came to fall out later i think maybe that's why yeah Fact, no, do you, do you know that, that is why uh, I played Fallout 3 much later. Oblivion I played in launch and Fallout 3 I maybe played two or three years afterwards. So maybe that that's why in my head there's a, there's a bigger difference here. Mm. But yeah, it's clearly it's clearly a very subjective decision. Yeah. Chris, have you got any suggestions, any advances on Halo for yourself as a, a newer retro game? Or is Halo the one for you? It's it's funny because I I just noticed that I hadn't actually answered my own question in the show yeah. notes and um and it's because I can't really decide um I mean Halo Halo two it's hard, it's hard. Halo two but not Halo three <laughs> um, well like I've said before I mean things like the because by Halo three that's Xbox three sixty um, Need for Speed Unlimited by the way was the game I was playing whilst you were playing Project Gotham um, that was the my car game of choice at that period um, but um, uh, yeah, I think the PS3 slash Xbox 360, I just see them as currently collectible because all the games are really, really cheap. And I see the reason why they're really, really cheap is because not many people have nostalgia towards them yet. But it's coming because obviously, as we've discussed before, it's a moving window of time. But what you said there, Dave, is is absolutely spot on. At the end of the day, these things are relative. And if you're only 30 years old, well, guess what? it's a shorter time period that you're going to be looking back towards to to things that you're actually nostalgic for. So, yeah, it's interesting. I've got another, another quick question for you both, just to hijack your story here. Can you remember how old you were roughly when you first felt nostalgic for anything? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can. Go on then, Dave. I can. It's when I played multi-gauntlet emulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late 90s before I before I even heard about MAME I played multi-Gauntlet emulator which as you might imagine played Gauntlet and Gauntlet 2 and loading up Gauntlet 2 from the arcade ROMs and hearing that music I'm sure it wasn't a, 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 as accurate as, as MAME or anything as now but hearing that music on my screen that I heard in the arcade 10 years before Amazing, absolutely amazing. That was that was my first taste of, I guess, what you would call retro, uh, was the end of the 90s playing that. And then, of course, that got me into MAME and Amstrad CPC emulation and the Atari ST emulation and all the rest of it. 
That's interesting because for me, it was probably MAME as well in the sort of um, second half of the 90s. However, that got me hooked on wanting to play the old arcade games. I didn't actually get nostalgic for, say, the Amstrad CPC until later than that. It was the stuff that I didn't have that I wanted that I got nostalgic for before I got nostalgic for the stuff I did actually have. Yeah. Oh, I get you. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. For me, for me I... I not a massive hit of nostalgia until quite recently. When I say quite recently, I'm talking, you know, 2018, last which is week. when I, when I, no, yeah, last week. <laughs> I, I don't know why we, why we have these podcasts every week. What is this about? You guys are mental. Um, no, it was. So the the big one was yeah, 2018 when I suddenly, for reasons unknown, uh, well, actually, the only, I've traced it back to when I saw a C64 Mini in an EB game store, and then went, oh, I wonder if they've done an Amiga looked up that and i'm pretty sure that's why the algorithm fed me your trash to treasure neil and that's what started it and it was like this massive i'd never felt anything like it this massive pang of nostalgia and wanting everything back hence the shells behind me and the machines on this desk but before that i'd I'd, I'd experienced it in little stints like um you know hearing the um the um jute nukem theme tune and going oh oh yeah that's Duke Nukem 3D was freaking awesome. And and then putting that as my ringtone on my phone to just annoy everybody around me and stuff like that. And and so there were little bits, but nothing like the 2018 wave. Um, do I say it continues? It continues in a different way because I, I see nostalgia as it's like a drug or it's like a whiskey. The more you drink it, the less of, a, of an effect it has, if that makes sense. Um, because if, if you're hitting yourself all the time with the same thing, then it's not the same rush of emotion. Um, so, yeah, you kind of have to take it in dribs and drabs. Sip at that. Sip at the nostalgia whiskey. Don't don't drink it all in one go. It, yep. it, it can catch you by surprise. I mean, I was going through some old Amstrad games today, and I, I had a clamshell box, and I pulled out the front cover of the game to read the instructions on the back. And you know what you got to do? you got to give it a sniff. You got to Ooh, give yeah. it a sniff. Mm. Give it a sniff. It took me straight back to a library in the eighties. The ink on the paper, and that was oh. like, oh, if I could bottle that smell. You never yeah. know where the next hit's going to come from. Um, so perhaps that's what Scott was talking about when he wanted retro junkies. You know, come in, get the hit, sniff <laughs> the manuals, <laughs> sniff the arcades. I can see the reviews on Airbnb going down. <laughs> uh, but anyway, to look, to land this plane, I've, as I've explained, and this kind of answers your question, retro has a very specific meaning to me. And um, I feel Halo has crossed the bridges between my two worlds. I first saw it in England, and it became one of the tools through which I created a new personal network on the other side of the world from home once I moved to Australia. Um, the PC version, as we discussed, um, came out in 2003, so that's 20 years ago. So it's not the Magic 30, um, which I think really is when things take off. But for me, it's a clear memory. Uh, I remember seeing it in game in England. It's an England memory. It's a fond memory, and that's what it's all about. So, yes, for me, Halo is retro, it's classic, and it's friggin' awesome. Time now for our community question of the week from you guys, the twirlers, the avid listeners. Thank you so much, as always, for taking the time to listen to the show and to participate at our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can submit news stories for us to discuss and also answer the question of the week. Now, last week's question of the week was, what 3D game would you like to see get a 2D remake? Nice, simple question. Uh, let's open up the answers on Reddit here. And... Um, 
we got some good answers. We've got a nice big selection of answers, and we'll go through the top three, but we would encourage you to go and have a look yourself to browse through all of the other ones. I'll take the top one. It's from our familiar friend Richard Shears, who says, I was looking at Dave's shelves. So if you watch the video version of the podcast, you can see Dave sat there in front of his big box game collection. And um, he said, I was looking at Dave's shelves when I was writing this, and lo and behold, at the top right was a game I was thinking of, that being Dungeon Keeper. I can see it right there. It's where your finger is, next to Populous. There you go, you've got it. Richard says, loved that game. It was fun and it didn't take itself too seriously. He loved the narration by Richard Ridings that really couldn't have been a better fit. However, I remember struggling with the 3D at times and it dragged me out of the moment. I'm probably alone and a target for a whipping by a mistress, <laughs> but I just think that that game would play better top down. It might have been that I was between upgrades at the time and the engine struggled on my hardware. And now I'll shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with Dungeon Keeper, it was that period where everything wanted to be 3D or everything had to be 3D. But actually, it had been proven that isometrics really works for a, uh, a real-time strategy or a resource management game in the theme of something like theme hospital for example so do you think dungeon keeper could have worked in a 2d isometric view oh, yeah. theme hospital stuff? Yeah, yeah i think it could have worked absolutely fine even if the map was 2d and the characters were 3d and you could sort of chuck them around Ultimate. like you do in the game but there you go we understand i think why they wanted to go fully 3d at that point um who wants to take the next uh, answer i'll go um so fiskit says i'd like to see spear of destiny done as a top-down game like alien breed or chaos engine and now i'll shut up shut up but he doesn't shut up because he then says uh seems i've been beaten to it and he's given a link to a youtube video of a top-down 2d um wolfenstein spear of destiny so so it's been done that video actually looks really nice it's got a lovely mm. aesthetic it's top down and um it's got kind of a lighting engine or a yeah, as you step into rooms, it kind of slowly reveals the room according to where you look. I guess in much the same way it would be FPS. When you go into a room, you don't instantly know what enemies are around the room. You've got to look about the place. So it kind of captures that feeling. The, the funny on, thing Chris. is, when I first read about Alien Breed, um, when before it actually got released, I'd read something, or again, it might have been a playground conversation, but I was at college at the time, um, that that's what they were going to do with Alien, the original Alien Breed, but it didn't actually, um, they didn't do it in, in, in the original game. Clearly, that's not how it was released. And so I wrote to them, and whether they <laughs> ever got my letter, I don't know, but I actually wrote with full sketches of how this thing could work and what you would see, depending on which way you were facing. Never heard back from them, but yeah, big A3 sketches and everything, all folded up, sent to Team 17. Um, Never heard a thing back. But that was that was how I wanted the game to play. I think it would have been fantastic. Can't believe they didn't listen to you, Dave. <laughs> I've got a tangent. I've got a little tangent here. Does anyone remember, into when people talk about Alien Breed, I always think Into the Eagle's Nest because that's what it looked like. That, that's, the, that's what the game feels like to me, mm. as if it's an evolution of Into the Eagle's Nest. But I never got anywhere in that game. It always felt as if the game was impossible to get anywhere in. But I don't know if any, any listeners want to tell me if they did get anywhere into the Eagle's Nest, if I was just rubbish at the game, or if you could actually do something with it. Anyway, um, sorry for that little tangent there. But into the Alien Breed's... 
it's kind of like gauntlet with soldiers, wasn't it? No, yeah. it, 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 people describe it as gauntlet, and it never, it never seems like gauntlet to me. But yes, it is the same gameplay. But it never, <laughs> never, it never strikes me as gauntlet, and the two, the two never linked in, in my head. Dave, Dave read number the three. third answer. Yeah. So, um, Testa de Merda. I hope that's how you pronounce it. One day we'll get a correction in that name, and we'll have to apologise. Uh, I think love it is, to is, see... it's a name. It's Taster, I think. Taster de Merda. But then the three doesn't make sense, does it? Taster de Merda. What's Merda? A taste of the murder. Ah, okay. I'd love to see Microsoft Flight <laughs> Simulator go double D. Double D. Hmm. Um, just imagining the endless scrolling parallax topography. The challenge of lining up for final approach, hitting that glide slope. Who needs bank and you anyway? Oh man, just the thought of making the loop, making the hop, making the hop over the Atlantic in real time, taking in all that blue scenery. Fabulous. And now I'll shut up. <laughs> so, so. So this guy wants a real-time flight over the Atlantic, so sort of, let's say, an eight-hour flight as a side-on 2D view. Is that what, we're, is that what he wants? Fantastic. Yeah. I'm on yeah, board. Harry Attack. I'm on Harry board. Attack. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. Harry Attack. <laughs> so uh, lots of other great answers. Thank you to everyone who participated. Bitter Blitter with Mech Warrior. Um, Alien Isolation from I Am Amiga. Antiques for Geeks talks about GTA. Double Dragon, Renegade. Um, what else have we got here? Although saying that, somebody's come back and said, hang on, wasn't GTA a top-down 2D game anyway? And there's a big conversation about that. Uh, Half-Life, says Tungsten Orchard. Um, yeah, Elite. Um, Naoki says Horizon Zero Dawn. Slash How, would you do elite? How would you do Elite? How would you do Elite? Um just hours and hours of stars scrolling in the background. The same, the same as your flights in maybe the Atlantic, just a side view. <laughs> <laughs> um, what elite, else elite in two D is just ports of cool. That's what it is. Yeah, it yeah. is ports of cool. Or Pirates. there was like a there was like a text only. Was it Drug Wars? There was a text only like um, oh, yeah. drugs database game wasn't yeah, there? it was yeah. like football manager with drugs Drug that was quite, <laughs> yes. um yeah uh, dead algorithm. space says pajaco a top-down shooter like alien breed loads of great answers so um do check out the subreddit if you want to read more and that brings us on to this week's question of the week which you can answer and i'm looking forward to the answers on this one as i always am unless it's about printers and the question is when did you first get nostalgic and what was it all about now, this doesn't necessarily have to be about video games. It can be anything. When did you first get struck, hit between the eyes by uh, something that made you feel nostalgic? Was it a VHS tape? Was it a game? Was it, um, was it a piece of music? Was it a smell? Were you sniffing something that you shouldn't have been and you got all nostalgic for it? Let us know. Airbnb. In an Airbnb. Um, head over to the subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you will find the question of the week pinned to the top. Uh, if you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe on YouTube. Uh, leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. It's all very much appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen. And have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. They're waving. Bye.
This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.